This is episode 46 of the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast with Annette Whitehead Plo. So that's that part of like looking at ourselves over and over to make sure that we are doing our best and then being open to uh, feedback from others when they tell us that we didn't do our best and, and taking that as a time that I would much rather face that embarrassment and, um, and that pain of, of not living to the ideal that I have of myself and, um, you know, and then to be able to make changes. You're listening to the Music Therapy Chronicles, a podcast about music therapy from a variety of perspectives. Our ambition is to inspire and connect listeners through meaningful conversations, just like a music therapy conference you can listen to anywhere. My name is Trisha Coyote, and I am a board-certified music therapist from the New England region. If you like what you hear, join our group on Facebook and share your own insights and thoughts about the episodes. You can also connect with us on social media and online at Music Therapy Chronicles. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast. In today's episode, I have my conversation with Annette Whitehead Plo, who is, as she mentions in this episode, an adjunct faculty at currently four, but also five universities, as well as an internship supervisor and a trailblazer in the research and teaching of LGBTQ plus in the creative arts um, and obviously specifically in music therapy. So in this episode, we talk about some of her research, Team Rainbow, what they're up to and working on, uh, as well as being culturally informed and responsive in our practices and some stories, some of her personal stories and advice for how we can make sure we are keeping our biases minimized, uh, remaining self-aware, and continuing to grow through these learning experiences. So if you are enjoying the podcast, as always, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Those reviews are really helpful in making the podcast more visible. And also, uh, people have been leaving reviews on Facebook. So if you want to leave one there, that'd be great too. I will read one at the end of this episode. You can find us online and on social media at Music Therapy Chronicles. Please consider joining our Facebook page. In there, there will be a poll for what you want to see for episode 50. I would love to be able to celebrate and give back um, in the way that you, the listener, (laughs) wants to celebrate. So is there a specific guest you want to see? Do you want to see highlights from the past 49 episodes? Do you want to ask questions to various guests and I have a compilation of those questions. What kind of thing do you want to see to celebrate 50 episodes, which is also right around the one year mark since uh, the show comes out once a week. So without further ado, let's get into this episode with Annette. (laughs) 
welcome to the Music Therapy Chronicles, Annette. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thanks for making the time to be on the show, especially with all the hecticness that is currently going on. Yeah, it's a it's a different world right now. Yeah. Very unprecedented. That's a good way of putting it. So to start us off, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, maybe outside of music therapy? Uh, like, like what? <laughs> I don't know. I, I do. Do you like cooking? Do you like gardening? Are you oh, an oh, avid yeah. quilter? Okay. Uh, so I, um, I'm a mom of a 13 year old and I'm, um, yeah, I like to knit, knit actually and needle felt. I love gardening. I brew my own beer and, uh, and hard cider and yeah. Um, yeah. Love playing my guitar. Awesome. How long have you been playing guitar? Oh, since my, uh, since I was 19. So that's a few years. (laughs) (laughs) So did you, did you pick the guitar up first in college for your degree? Yeah, I did. I picked it. I had to take a guitar class and, you know, in the music therapy program. Mm -hmm. And that's where I learned. That's where I first learned to play guitar. Before that, I played saxophone, mostly Barry sax, but but all the saxes. Good for you. That's a a lot of instruments to maintain. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I haven't used my saxophone much over the years because uh, it's not really a good music therapy instrument, um, at least where I was working. And so... Yeah, mainly uh, sing and play guitar and then, you know, all the drums and stuff. Yeah, for sure. So um, I actually had a listener reach out to me and request to have you on the show, which you know. Uh, And he really wanted to hear about your research and courses uh, regarding LGBTQ Mm -hmm. in music therapy. So can you give us... Some of that, some of that knowledge that you've collected or um, accumulated oh. over the years. Oh, I guess, yeah, um, yeah. So I, golly, it was um, it was the conference in Austin, Texas, which I don't remember what year that, that was, but it was a long time ago, over probably over fifteen years ago. Um, uh, that uh, um, I had been asked to speak about heterosexism in music therapy. And, uh, and so I actually had my, uh, spouse come with me, uh, cause she was working in, um, in, at a LGBT youth center. And I felt like the two of us would be a better person, you know, do a better job covering LGBTQ stuff than, uh, just alone. And, uh, so yeah, we presented on heterosexism and music therapy and, um, yeah. And in that, uh, conf- in that presentation I talked about different best practices outside of music therapy for LGBTQ concerns and uh, and uh, and said that there wasn't one for music therapy and people in the audience are like well you should write one and I was like oh god no pressure maybe. yeah <laughs> and so I tried uh, several times over the next few years but I just felt like it was such a big thing that I couldn't I couldn't do it by myself and and so I put it off. And uh, and then in the San Diego conference, I met um, Amy Donnerworth, who became a member of Team Rainbow. Um, and we st- and I talked to her about it. Um, and she uh, she was super interested in that project. And we started recruiting other people t- together. And we formed our our group, Team Rainbow. Um, 
And that was our first task, which was writing the best practices for music therapy. Sorry about all the noises. My cat is climbing on me again. (laughs) Yeah, so that's how that started. And uh, we worked for two years. We had conference calls every other week for an hour at, like, my lunchtime. West Coast was breakfast time. Um, Yeah, and we met every two weeks for two years to like look over different best practices and start to draft what were the best practices at that time for music therapy and and uh, and then then uh, submitted it for publication and the conference was coming up so we put it in for the conference that was the one in atlanta georgia uh in 2012 and um and then we invited everybody we could think of to come to it because we felt like it was it was groundbreaking work and we wanted people to come and to hear and um yeah and all eight of us were there presenting and uh and it was it was that was enormous uh there was over 200 people that attended and yeah and people got up and spoke about how that they thought they were the only person who was queer in music therapy um one person did get up and say that she read Jody Bacolt's book and so she figured there must be at least one more <laughs> but she didn't know anybody yeah and people were like you know had tears in their eyes about how lonely they had been and how grateful they were to know and to see like eight people up on the stage you know who were queer and saying it out loud and uh yeah after we were so moved by that and after that we decided that we had to keep going and and create social uh, like a way for us to for everybody to be socially connected and um and to provide support for each other and so we moved uh, you know team rainbow moved forward doing some of that stuff we're super excited just to say that uh we're that uh that so we're just a group of people um that got together to do this these projects and and we do a lot of education and presentations um over the years but we're not by any means like the um, representatives of all the queer community, although sometimes we've been put in that position, but we're, that's not what we are, and that's what not what we think we are. And um, we've uh, th- so there's a um, we're creating we've we're creating a uh, queer uh, affinity group for LGBTQAI people to join. And um, right now there's. Um, nominations for for the like the board or steering committee i forget what we called it but for people to be, nominate themselves or others to be a part of it and um and you can find that information on facebook and if and, and if you, anybody wants it isn't on facebook and wants to have, uh, be a part of it you can email me at mtbcawp at gmail.com Awesome. I will find that stuff and link it in the show notes. Oh, so that, sweet. Yeah, so that people can find it and uh, get involved. So what is Team Rainbow up to most currently? Oh, I, well, so we're facilitating that election. Just uh, we felt somebody had to do it. And so we were in a place and we had connections to people. So we wanted to facilitate the election. And then um, and then we we're looking to the to that board to take over the affinity group stuff and um and then we are um uh i'm right, right uh, we're kind of 
we've done so much work over the years that we're um, in a place of a little bit of being of taking a little break Good and for you. Um, yeah and tr- wanting to regroup into um we really want to look at what our mission is and and uh think about what do we want to do moving forward and how do we want to use our collective brain power and um and ideas um and so we're kind of in that sort of space uh and you know trying to find you know like 10 years ago when we first started meeting it was easy for us to find time together we because it was such a pressing issue and we just real all really were able to create time but then like people have had children and lives have changed and, and now you know it's it's yeah, we sometimes have a spreadsheet of like possible meeting times and there's like an hour <laughs> that everybody's free yeah. <laughs> and so yeah but yeah that's uh that's our plan i think yeah that we want to do that we're also like parts of the group uh yeah you know, we break off into smaller groups and do things and so like leah oswanski and shirley, shirley tan and i are completing a like writing up a study that we want to publish soon and then also um Michelle Fornash and I are finishing up another uh, a different study and that we're we're in, just revising that manuscript for publication and so uh, yeah yeah we're yeah we're still doing stuff can we get a sneak peek of one of those studies what it was <laughs> what you found uh, sure. So uh, one, the one with Michelle was really fun. And uh, well, I mean, I think all research is fun, but not everybody is like that. Um, <laughs> uh, but that one was uh, um, looking at the role of queer leaders in, in music therapy organizations in the United States from the 70s until now. And so get, we uh, did a historical research where we interviewed 10 different uh, leaders and leaders were defined as people who held either um, appointed or elected positions in one of those, one of the national music therapy associations or regional music therapy associations. And so that could be like, you know, from a regional elected position to like a committee member on a national committee to, yeah, and to, uh, being appointed to like some work group or or even serving on the board of directors for AMTA or AAMT or NAMT. And so, uh, yeah, so we interviewed people and we looked at, uh, we tried to have people from different um, age groups and different um, uh, cultures of heritage and different levels of service. And um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and and also people with different orientations and gender identities to try and get a better um, understanding of people's uh, contributions. We also looked at people who are out and people who are not out, and so and then we've written it up in a way to protect people's identities. And so maybe not all the information that we would like to share is in there because we want to make sure if people are not out that we don't, you know, we're not gonna we don't want to harm anybody by outing them and or disrespect their decision to be in and so uh, yeah and so we uh, yeah we looked at people's contributions we looked at um you know what what things they've served on and um what their experiences were like were they 
accepted or not? Did they encounter homophobia or, or transphobia? Did, um, you know, what sorts of things were they a part of? Like big, you know, big decisions within the organizations. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we, we saw that there's still a lot of, um, there's still uh, like oppressive things going on within the associations from then even to now. And, um, we did see like differences in like people's ability to be out, but that's a, that, you know, from like 1970 to now, but that's a pretty, that's a pretty normal, um, change in the culture. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, I'm not sure what sort of information you'd want more from about it. Um, we did see like that the Pulse nightclub shooting and the response to that by AMTA was really difficult for many, many people. Um, we also saw like the intersection of uh, race and uh, queer identities um, was uh, that it helped that it made it seemed to make people more feel more invisible and you know, or with their queer identities and not to be seen as a queer person and not to be, have the voice that other people have, which again is not surprising. Yeah. That's a lot of really heavy stuff to find and digest <laughs> and try and put out in a respectful and concise manner. Yeah. Yeah. It was, but it was also, it was really beautiful to see how much people have done and, and this unknown history being there and being able to, to bring it to light, uh, people's history to light, um, even though it's done in, in an anonymous way. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And it was uh, really beautiful to see uh, the resilience that people have. But, um, but honestly, like, so several people, because we, we went... We went. We did more of like a, a sample, all based on. Um, so we ended up interviewing people we know and maybe some of our friends, and it was very. It was hard to hear, um, like the people of color talking about such something so personal, as well as the the people who are bi or pan and who are in heterosexual relationships and their invisibility and to hear like, like these people who are my friends talking about this painful experience was really, you know, I had like in a researcher mode, you can't be friend mode right now, you can be friend mode after this is done, but uh, it was hard to, to hear that and then to I'd listen to the, to, to the recordings back to transcribe and it was equally, it was just very painful to hear my friend's pain and and um yeah yeah and I hope that this will this will help to change things at least to bring light to the experiences that people are having maybe other people will say oh I see myself in this and not feel as alone yeah yeah the other study the other study with Leah and Shirley is um we looked at uh uh the level of, we used some um tools from from um, uh, from uh, licensed professional counselors that are um, uh, like validated and all that. So we used uh, two different tools to to look at 
people, uh, music therapists, uh, cultural competence, which you know people have a lot of trouble with that word because you can never be confident at things, but, uh, but that's looking at the, the definition of it really literally when really cultural competence is something that you strive for continually, that sort of reflexive, like cultural responsiveness or cultural humility sort of thing. But we, you know, but that's what the tools were called. And so we use those to look at, um, music therapists and their, and their level of cultural competence. And, um, yeah, and we found that it was very varied, which we expected. We did find, um, that some, uh, that often people with minoritized, um, identities that they rate, they scored a little higher than people with uh, majority identities. And so, uh, that was interesting. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's a brief overview of that. Awesome. Um, when they're available, we'll have to link it so that everyone can find it, those resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, you know, it's carving out the time to sit and like look at it and to make it pretty. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also the it's it's emotionally taxing. Like you said, you have to gear yourself up to do that work and to do it well. Yeah. 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 And that, well, now it's all the editing and being like, is this, you know, did we write this well enough? Do we need to include more research? And like, you know, do we need to like look at the stats again? You know, that sort of thing. It's not the exciting part of research. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, and again, everybody's lives are like, everybody's lives have kind of exploded right now. And so you know, I'm not sure if that's going to create us create more, opportunities to write or less it's we shall see yeah that's a positive way to look at it though mm, yeah yeah it, and it'll be it'll be really wonderful to share these with the the community and and for us and to um you know to see if people think our ideas are and what we found was was good or not and and also to think about like what can we do to how can we change things to uh, to do to do to do better? Because you know, the more I study like culture and music and and cultural responsiveness and social justice, uh, but especially getting to the cultural part, I like everything I read talks about how music is a part of culture and it's like a cultural artifact. And um, and so for using a cultural medium of music to work with people who have most likely different intersecting identities and cultural identities than we have, then like we're working in a lot of cultural things and, and we're all cultural beings. And so we bring our own viewpoints from our, from our identities into our sessions and our clients are coming in with their own viewpoints from their identities into the session. And we may not be really speaking the same. um, Well, I mean, we're speaking the same language probably but we're not understanding each other's ideas fully because we're we have our own cultural lenses on and if we're not aware of all that stuff and most of us are not taught that in school that uh and i've done this has all been learning on outside of school uh that i've done uh that it's uh yeah that we just uh we have a lot of, there's a lot of room for error in, in that. And, um, and I think that if we can increase our education around cultural issues, uh, 
in for our students and for our professionals that we can um, we can do a better job of um, of um, you know ca uh, caring for our clients. Yeah, I remember uh, when I was in school, the idea of music being a universal language quote yeah. was really controversial because uh, yeah, everyone can kind of hear music, be part of music, maybe understand the gist of what's being expressed in the music. But when you are coming at it from a different cultural lens or any lens, uh, it's not so much universal anymore because you're interpreting it differently. Yeah. Yeah. I, a lot of this, of my, th a lot of the germs of, not germs, <laughs> I mean, that's a bad word to use right now. <laughs> a lot of the seeds of my research were planted in um, when I worked at uh, Shriners Hospitals for Children in Boston, because it was an international hospital, it is an inter international hospital, and um, we had people coming from all over the world to be treated there. And and there are days that I would, there are, I mean, many, many days that I didn't, that if I had one person who spoke English on my caseload, I was lucky. Wow. And um, yeah, and I, like I learned Spanish kind of from the children and uh, while I worked there and so I could communicate some not really well in Spanish to people but uh but yeah I would work with kids from other places and I, I remember this one kid I worked with from Nepal um and she was like eight and um and she really enjoyed music and their family friend was the interpreter and um she wasn't the best interpreter nothing against her but um yeah and so uh so pretty much I could be like, do you want to do music? And the kid would say yes or no. And then, you know, I, we, and, but then there were, then the mom and the family friend would leave. And so I'd be with this kid and we had no shared language. And, and so I would set her up with the iPad with a thumb jam and, and, you know, we would go through like thumbs up and thumbs down and choose different instruments and, and scales on it. And then, and then we would just jam for like 45 minutes. And she was she was amazing because she would just be so into music and improvising for for the whole time and um, and I and I knew that like things were happening and I could see she was happy she looked happier and and you know you could feel things happening in the music but I really like there's no way for me to ever ask her like what happened and you know what did all this mean to her. Um, uh, and so, and I really, and I, and I was interpreting music through my experiences and my knowledge of Western music, but I was like, this might have very different meaning for her coming from Nepal. I don't really know much about the music of Nepal and, uh, and, and her understanding of music. And, and so, yeah, I just, I realized that we could be having completely different experiences um, although we were having similar experiences of like being together in music and having that sort of community feeling and, you know, we would look at each other and smile and, and music, you know, we, she, she would play something and I would respond and I could tell that she was hearing me respond. And so, you know, we were definitely connected, but still like the meaning of in the connection was, um, was lost because of there's, you know, I don't know what was happening for her. 
Yeah. Hope that doesn't make me sound like a bad music therapist. <laughs> no, honestly, it, it, I love stories like that for the first because it reminds me how important the music itself is because I work primarily in schools and a lot of times the music is lost in all the IEP goals and all that kind of stuff. So to be reminded that, hey, you can just improvise with a client and see that they're happier and know that you're doing the work that needs to be done. But what you're saying mm -hmm. also makes me think of the language barrier with our nonverbal clients. Um, mm -hmm. Not even that they speak a different language, but that you, for a nonverbal client, you can't necessarily ask them what the music meant to them and how they interpreted it or any of these questions that would inform you in your practice uh, and your understanding of what just happened. But you, you kind of have to do it blind. Yeah, you know, I would talk, my interns would talk to me and they'd be like, you know, this is so hard because we don't have music and I can't talk to them. And I was like, so did you do, like you're talking about, like, did you do an in, internship or a practicum with like children with multiple disabilities who may not have the ability to speak? And they're like, oh yeah, of course. And I was like, but so with them, you didn't have a shared language either. Like, and yeah, you know, and you still did music with them and and that really made them pause and 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 think about that and cuz i think we think i think we uh, might think that people who have uh who don't have the ability to communicate um or at least to speak that we still think that they speak in english and understand us you know mm -hmm. and but uh but uh we i don't know do they like I'm not sure and many of them use other forms of communication they're kind of based in English but still are different forms of communication and so then there's an interpretive element of it where um where a lot can be lo a lot of nuances of language are lost in, in interpretation yeah yeah totally so yeah are there any other, because you, you do work with interns and you also teach a lot of courses. Before we started recording, I think you said you are doing courses at five colleges. Is that correct? This semester, I'm only at only, 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 right? four colleges. <laughs> I have one class at four at each college. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, I, I realize that that's kind of a unique sort of adjunct. But yeah, that's, yeah, I work for, at five different colleges, you know. And, uh, yeah, so I, um, this semester I'm teaching two courses on cultural responsiveness and social justice in music therapy, which is really cool. Um, that's one of my more favorite cl classes to teach. And, and so that's, um, yeah, th those have like, first you talk about like power and oppression and, uh, privilege and, and, um, bias. And, and then we move into looking at different, um, uh, culture, cultures like cultures of heritage, cultures of religion, cultures of like sex and gender, or gender and sex and sexual orientation, and yeah, and cultures of ability and disability, and then talking about then music therapy practices. And, you know, once you understand that, how we can make uh, do more culturally responsive um, practices and bring social justice into our work. Um, around queer things I, I teach a, I think it's one of my favorite classes to teach um, yeah, a class about uh, LGBTQ AI musicians actors uh, dancers and um, artists and, uh, and that's a, a class that's combined at 
Boston Conservatory of Music and and Berklee College of Music. Um, and so that's, uh, yeah, Berklee and Boston Conservatory is looking at um, uh, queer um, musicians, dancers, art, visual artists, and actors. And so that's a, that's a really cool course to do and looking at people over time and, um, and seeing just like this, like, you know, back in history, there's just like a, you know, we just have a few people, you know, that we might, you know, suspect maybe they were queer or maybe they were openly queer, but like, you know, there's not, a, there's just a few people here and there. And then as we get more into more modern times, there's more and more and more people. And it's just such a huge explosion, especially over the last five years. And so that's, that's a really fun class to teach. Yeah. So um, between those two or, and your research and your culmination of knowledge, do you have any like really practical advice or tools for um, professionals in the field every day? Uh, what's, um, how can we keep these things in mind? How can we maybe work through some of our own biases or anything like that? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so I think, so cultural responsive practices really um, have three different parts, and um, the part that's really fun is learning about other cultures, and, you know, we can do, we do that often at conferences where we have, you know, um, people presenting on different cultures, and, you know, or going and taking a class on, you know, West African drumming or something, you know, that's super fun, and those are really important things to do. The part that isn't so fun is like the self-exploration and it's a reflexive process that happens, has to happen throughout our lives and have to be kind of brutally honest with ourselves over and over. And it's not fun. Um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, you know, learning, it's a process of learning about, uh, you know, the ways that you've not maybe done the best job with people and maybe times that you're racist or homophobic or, or cis-sexist or ableist or, you know, and, um, and the, yeah, and that's really, we're all like music therapists are really, really nice, decent people who mean well in the world and want to do good things. And it's really hard to, um, to have that narrative about ourselves and then to see that, oh, I made that, I made that big mistake, you know, um, you know, and I'm, I'm still constantly being confronted with the mistakes that I make. Um, yeah, I realized uh, recently, I thought I was speaking more from my trans voice, but I, but I realized that people are seeing me always as speaking from my white place and, uh, and my white privilege. And, and I have to, you know, and realizing that I, you know, I wield that white privilege very casually and carelessly at times and that I need to, uh, need to uh, be much more aware of my privileges. Um, and I also know that I take that, that white privilege and use it to help to amplify like the queer voice, uh, which is, I guess, doing it in a good way, but I don't, would never want to do that in a way to um, drown out other voices that are, that are equally or more important to hear. And so, yeah, so we, that's, so that's that part of like, looking at ourselves over and over to make sure that we are doing our best and then being open to uh, feedback from others when they tell us that we didn't do our best and, and taking that as a time that I would much rather 
face that embarrassment and um, and that pain of, of not living to the ideal that I have of myself and, um, you know, and then to be able to make changes um, then to uh, continue to harm others by my, you know, by my, the internalized racism that I've, or ableism or whatever that has just, you know, is so pervasive in our communities that we are within these systems and we can't, like it's, we can't fully break free of them. We can continue to work to, to limit them as much as we can. And then the final part is then, you know, taking, you know, enacting this in our, in our sessions and like doing things like changing our assessment form. So, uh, so it's not in the gender binary system or, um, and changing our language, you know, for think about queer things like to not always say she or he, but to move into using words like they or leaving open ended questions instead of saying, do you have a girlfriend? Do you can, are you seeing someone, you know, like and give like people that sort of space to be themselves. Um, and uh, and yeah, and uh, yeah, and to think about like what instruments we're using and what scales we're using and what do, you know, are we really functioning from the Western European, um, you know, canon of music and music scales and music instruments. And are we pushing our, our culture on other people, you know, or, or are we creating space where they can bring in their own cultural, uh, thing, norms and music, you know, and, um, and also to be aware of how we're, interpreting what's happening like a good example of that is a uh, when I worked at the hospital I worked with this young man from Nigeria and he uh, he saw me with my guitar and he, he wrote me a note and sent it to me through staff that said um, he wanted to learn guitar from me and it would make him alive to do that and I was like oh, okay <laughs> so I went and met with him and I he was, he was very headstrong and so it was very hard to teach him to play different chords and then he, but and then he was noodling around on the guitar and he figured out how to do like an F bar chord and uh and so he would just play that up the up the um up the neck you know and have like three different chords and it was always the same three chords and it was always the same rhythm and then he wrote different songs with it and uh, and and so we would be doing these songs and practicing them for his performance and and he uh would and it was like the same song would go on for about 10 or 15 minutes. And, be, and I'd try to change the rhythms or I'd do something and he was not having it. You know, he just, like, the music had to be exactly the same every time. And so through my Western American white, you know, lens, I was like, wow, this guy has like, there's some like some sort of funky, like, you know, maybe OCD sort of content or or some, you know, like he's really fixed in this fit and he's not able to get out of where he is, like in a sort of like a psychodynamic way that he's not, he's really kind of stuck. And no matter how hard I push for him to move, he's not, you know, and so I was starting to pathologize him. And then uh, luckily, um, another kid was admitted from Nigeria and she actually had a cassette of music that she liked. And so we put it on, we were listening, listening to it. And I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> those songs are, are super repetitive and go on for like 10 minutes to 15 minutes each. And, you know, and, and, you know, had like a lot of the same rhythms that he had. And I was like, wow, I was totally pathologizing him when he's actually, 
doing things in his own culture in the right right way for him. And so like being willing to step outside of ourselves and to to try and look at things through our through our clients' eyes or from our clients' cultural experiences. Yeah. What a great example. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was a cool guy. Later he like so this is a really cool example of music therapy and like a client taking it and doing the growth on their own. And so I, you know, kind of taught him how to play guitar and then we would like play and, and I encouraged him to write these songs and he was, he was very prolific. And one day he came in, he was an outpatient then, he came in and he's like, I want to play you something. And he put on this cassette and it was in his language um, uh, of Ibu. And so he was then narrating each song to me as we listened and it was like documenting his whole traumatic experience. And so like a song, uh, forgiving his, uh, half brother for the, for injuring him. It was an intentional injury. And then a song about the trial and a song about telling his family not to worry that he's okay. And a song thanking the guy who got him connected with Shriners and got him to America for, for the care. And, uh, you know, in the song thinking, some other people. And, and I was just like, wow, like I gave him the, I didn't even give him, I helped him to develop the skills to write songs and to play them. And then he took them and he like documented the whole traumatic experience and took like these really difficult feelings and turned them into, into music, which is like turning like, you know, pain into something beautiful and was then able to move forward in his, his healing process because of that. And it was, just so incredible to see like the resilience and growth within another human being. Yeah. How amazing. Ah, That must've been really fulfilling to be a part of and to witness. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, when I would tell people that I worked at a burn hospital, they'd be like, Oh my God, that's so depressing. And it was actually like the most uplifting place I've ever worked. I've just watched, yeah, people came in, the children came in, and they were in devastating positions of, like, trauma and injury, their bodies so, so injured and, and experiencing so much pain, and that was definitely hard to see, but then they would get better. It would take time, but they would get better, and then, you know, and then the kid, we also had the kids coming back for reconstructive surgeries until they were 21, and so, you know, kids that you saw in the most awful time in their life would come back, like, a year or two later, and they'd be better, and happy and telling you about school or, you know, things they were doing at home and they were being kids again. And it was, uh, and they certainly had difficult things to deal with still, but, um, but their resilience and strength to grow. And then just like that life force was amazing to witness every single day. And then also to witness um, the depth of love a parent has for a child was just, that was, astounding to see every day too and the the sacrifices parents made to be there with their children and and just how much they love their kids that was that was there's really no words to explain that but yeah yeah it was a cool job but witnessing trauma like that every day for 15 years was enough you know it was it took a bit of a toll on me and so I miss that work deeply, but I'm, I'm glad that I've moved on to other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good for you. 
Do you have anything you want to add or revisit before we move into our rapid fire questions? Uh, Just that like, no matter who, like, I don't know, like we, like Team Rainbow back in, in 2012, we made a difference for a lot of queer people and helped them to know that they have a place in being a music therapist. But I've had so many students and interns over the years who are people of color and they've talked about how they look around and they don't feel like they have a place in music therapy. And I want everybody who's listening, who feels that they don't have a place in music therapy, that, that you do. And that, um, and yeah, that, uh, that there's lots of us out there who, who are here for you and to, you know, to look us up and, um, well, like look, look me up and I'll get you connected to other people who can help you out. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being uh, a resource and a uh, trailblazer with all of this. Oh, yeah. I didn't intend it, but it (laughs) certainly seems to have happened. (laughs) I'm actually kind of quiet and shy. (laughs) (laughs) There's a, a phrase about how life can only be understood in reverse but must be lived forward oh so good yes because yeah when you're in it you're like well, i don't know what's going on mm-hmm. but then you look back and you sort of do understand things better for sure for sure yeah all right so these questions are short but your answers don't <laughs> have to be okay the first one is coffee or tea coffee well both tea decaf sadly all right (laughs) early bird or night owl early bird good for you something you would tell your younger self oh god um so many things (laughs) you can pick a few (laughs) don't date her no Um, (laughs) uh Oh, oh, that you're enough. Like, who you are is enough. Your music therapy elevator speech. Oh, God, I hate it. I hated that. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, no. I got so tired of it because every, like, two weeks or whatever, there'd be new residents. It seemed like every two weeks. So it was maybe a little longer than that. But, and you know, and uh, after like 12 years of that I like this guy got on the elevator and he was like oh the entertainment's here and I just you know <laughs> I just couldn't anymore and uh, my in the, the door opened for my floor and I just said I'm a music therapist and left so <laughs> that's not the best speech <laughs> <laughs> but I felt really happy with it <laughs> there you go and um the the mid-atlantic region they when I went to a conference there they gave out buttons like these big buttons that say uh, music therapy question mark ask me and I have mine on my guitar bag and one time a client asked me I put my guitar down I took it out we're in a group and he goes what's music therapy you know and this kid had been doing music therapy for years and so I was like well what do you think music therapy is like goodness gracious I've opened up a can of worms Excellent therapist answer. If you don't know it, just turn it back on the client. Mm-hmm. 
Well, because it's true, because, you know, someone probably asks them, like, who's that lady who sings and does guitar with you every week? And for them to be able, maybe not um, in a scientific way or, you know, but just to explain what we Mm -hmm. do is important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my, my, so my actual definition of music therapy is, is broad, um, but uh, I don't know. So it's and I and I struggle over the words like I I usually say that like the use of music but I wonder about like do we use music and I don't know the I don't know the right word now because um, I think so much about it uh, but you know using music to accomplish goals that the help you know that the client sets hopefully with the music therapist you know um, that's about it. Well said. Hmm. Your favorite self-care practice? Um, actually, brewing beer. <laughs> that's, that's I love it when I can set aside the hours it takes to do that. Um, that, that. And I find it so very fascinating and interesting, like cre- creating new recipes and watching the chemistry of, and, of beer happening. And then I give it all, most of it away to my friends. You have some lucky friends. <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> Something that is currently adding value to your life. Um, putting myself first is adding value to my life. Yeah. Yeah. It's not an easy thing to do, but yeah. Yeah. It is not an easy thing to do. You're totally right. Yeah. Your favorite intervention or song to use in a session? Hmm. I don't know. Um, there's so much about music therapy I love. What's that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, they just, I really like from using like where you listen to music and talk about songs, you know, the words that was, I loved doing that and certainly loved improvising with people. And I love like singing to people and singing with people and I love doing relaxation and when songwriting is always so fun too. I just, uh, there's so much that I love about it. I really couldn't choose what's my favorite. Sorry. Don't be sorry. I love that answer. It's it's good to feel invigorated by all the things you can and do um, so that mm-hmm. your days aren't bogged down by all the things that are less preferable. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly things I didn't like or don't <laughs> like. <laughs> True. Yeah. And lastly, where can the listeners find you, connect with you, and get involved in uh, everything you have going on? Well, they can find me at, at my email of mtbcawp at gmail and dot com, and um, and I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram, and um, I think Instagram is in that wp and. Uh, Facebook, um, it's a net whitehead flow, and um, yeah, I'm not on those things a whole like a ton, but I'm there some, and uh, yeah, and you can, and uh, if you ever see me at a conference, 
um, please come up and talk to me. I'm, yeah, I'm, and also if you have met me before, I just am really, I have a hard time remembering people's faces and I have really like poor visual memory. And so please come and tell me who you are and then I'll be like, oh, so nice to see you again. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of looking baffled. Yeah. Well, I'd say I'll see you at the New England conference, uh, but that's not going to happen right now. (laughs) No, no, I will be. I was to also go to the World Congress in in South Africa. I'm just going to bring my daughter and we are both really sad uh, that we can't go because that's been a lot being transitioned to an online conference this year. So if you... um, yeah, so that's an option for people to join and uh, for without a, any travel and can be socially isolated in July at an online conference with people throughout the world. So I'll be there. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, maybe, I mean, I haven't heard anything about national conference, but maybe, oh, maybe we'll all be like geared up for that. And then there'll be a huge turnout because everyone will have their pennies saved. Oh my, I hope that, yeah, I hope that, gee. Uh, yeah I hope that it's so hard to know what's going to happen but it does seem like a month or so and then hopefully the viral like the social isolating will decrease the virus and you know it'll bottom out like all those charts are showing us yeah for sure yeah yeah but um oh and so this is a new thing just to share with people if you don't mind I'm sorry of course no but um yeah, so I've been in the process of creating my own nonprofit, and it's still in like the beginning stages of that. And I was waiting to get that started to offer supervision services, but now I'm seeing, like online, like people's practices are being devastated by, um, by the by everything shutting down, and um, seeing that people are just very um, having a very difficult time, and so. Um, I was going to announce it later today or tomorrow on on social media, but I'm going to be. Um, I'll I'm going to start my pra- my business early before the, the nonprofit status, and so I just I'll deal with all that baloney. But um, but yeah, no, I was going to offer supervision to people, and it can be at whatever you can afford, because I know that people's income is now um, in jeopardy, and so even if you can't afford. It, I'm going to trust you to, you know, make the best choice for your, your wallet, but also in recommend, you know, recognizing that, you know, that this is a service. But for this time being, while we're in this crisis, that I'll be offering supervision services for, um, for groups and for um, people at the cost that they can afford, even if it's no cost. Beautiful. Thank you so much for uh, being yeah. that resource and putting that out there. Yeah, well, yeah, I was I figured that if we come together in groups, we can at least, I don't, I'm not, I'm not pretending like I have any answers for this, because I'm just as uh, dumbfounded and, and probably frightened as everybody else. But um, I know that, um, especially right now, I'm, you know, we can't like, hang out or anything. And, um, and when we're scared, you know, like being connected to other people is, is, very beneficial and so even just coming together and uh, sharing space and sharing experiences that are similar um, can be not we may not solve anything but we won't feel alone and that's um, that's something like yeah 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 
What a wonderful tie back to your research about feeling alone and isolated. Oh yeah. In a very different way, but um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's more you know, yeah, you know, it's uh, yeah, it also relates to my own personal experiences of of like shame creating isolation and and knowing that that's that you know the way to heal from shame is to is to de-isolate yourself and so not that shame is involved in this but knowing that I just all the difficulty of um of isolation and so wanting to help to create um virtual community in this time yeah thank you thank you so much and thank you for sharing and being on the show and uh, for all this the research and content and everything you're putting out for uh, us to feel connected and to learn from thank you so much oh sure thank you for having me of course have a wonderful day and stay healthy (laughs) yeah yep (laughs) bye Bye bye-bye Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired and connected to other music therapists, um, either by listening to the show and talking about it, joining our group on Facebook, or checking out the resources that Annette mentioned and getting involved with those. As promised, I'm going to read one of our Facebook recommendations. This one comes from Bonnie Haupt, and she says, This podcast, with its several interviews, presents insightful conversations that spark inspiration and reflection and provides helpful resources for more knowledge in several relevant music therapy topics. So thank you so much, Bonnie, for taking the time to leave us a review. If you're looking for a different way to support the podcast, please consider becoming a patron over on patreon.com slash music therapy chronicles. You can choose whatever donation amount you are comfortable with. So for as little as a dollar, you could have the opportunity to ask guest questions to anyone we have scheduled on the show. So please consider supporting the podcast that helps um, the show be more professionally produced and hopefully uh, traveling in the future to do some live things at conferences and what have you. Obviously this year that's a little disrupted, (laughs) but for future planning, that would be something I would really love to do a great opportunity to have. Also, the show is not possible without our guests. So please, if there is someone you want us to have on the show, then reach out um, by emailing feedback at musictherapychronicles.com and let me know. Let me know who you want to hear from and I will reach out to that person. Or if you want to be on the show, you have something to share, which I obviously believe everyone has something to share, then send an email to feedback at musictherapychronicles.com And we'll go from there. Thank you so much again for listening to this week's episode, and I will see you in the next one.